A few weeks ago, I asked my boys, 10 and 12, my younger two, a question that I ask them every night, and that is, do you want ice cream and cookies tonight? I need to stop asking that question because they've never said no. Um, so, of course, they said yes, so I took some cookies, threw them in the oven, and I didn't really want ice cream and cookies that night. I wanted instead these little red velvet cake balls my daughter taught me how to make. And so I started making those. Well, when the boys heard that I was making the special cake balls, they come running upstairs to eat some of that. So they're eating that while we're talking, you know, it's going and making dessert. And then they kind of go back downstairs, and all of a sudden, cookies and ice cream are ready. And so they come back up and get their cookies and ice cream and take that down to do whatever they're doing. And, and at some point, I end up going to bed, and I get up the next morning. I'm in the kitchen making pancakes with my wife, who, by the way, that makes me sound like I cook way more than I really do. I don't. I don't. I don't. I promise. So I, I'm making pancakes, and my wife comes in. She goes over to the pantry, and she's like, what is this? And I'm like, what? She goes, well, there's like white stuff all over the floor. And she wipes it up and looking at it, trying to figure out what it is. And she starts tracing it back up where it had come down, all down the, the, the shelves of the pantry. And she traces it all the way back up to a full bowl of ice cream and cookies with a napkin laid over it, as if it were hidden. And I'm like, I've seen this before. Boys, boys, come here, come here, come here, come here. What is this? And you could tell on my 12-year-old Sammy's face, he was definitely the guilty one. As soon as I asked the question, where did this come from? I go, what are you thinking, brother? And he says, well, I, I didn't want to get in trouble for not eating my ice cream and cookies, but I was so full from the other stuff. And, you know, at your house, you get in trouble for not eating your broccoli. At my house, you get in trouble for not eating your ice cream and cookies. So there he was. So he, I decided to put a napkin. I thought I'd hide it there. And not exactly a house full of geniuses hiding ice cream in the pantry. Um, but nonetheless, his ice cream overflowed the bowl and he was exposed. I, I thought about that this week because, um, because I think in some ways, in a spiritual way, that we're all a little bit like that. And that there are things that we're hiding. Maybe we've put a napkin over certain things in our life, but eventually what's in our heart overflows. And we too are exposed. A couple of Sundays ago, I asked you a question about sin. And I asked you whether you knew what sin you were kind of most prone to, most susceptible to. If down the road you found out that you had drifted away from Christ, do you know what sin that it would have probably have been that tugged your heart away from Jesus and toward another direction? That question was getting about whether you know your greatest enemy. Today, a different question. Are, are there any sins that you've grown comfortable with? Sins in your life, my life, that we've just kind of come to say, this is okay. I can tolerate this. Sins that we don't think are that big of a deal anymore. There's a verse in Genesis that has shaped my view of, of sin, and I, I, want, I want it to shape it even more, and, and it's this, Genesis 4-7 it says, this is God speaking, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, I think when we read that verse, the first thing that comes to our mind is that we don't think of sin the way God does. We don't think of sin the way the Bible teaches us to. See, the Bible says that sin is crouching at your door. Now, your door here is kind of a figure of speech of where you live life, where you come in and go out of your own life. And, and sin crouches there. 
Now, you crouch when you're getting ready to strike, when you're getting ready to pounce on something, when you're looking for an opportune time, just the right moment to jump, to leap into action. Sin is not asleep. Sin crouches, awaiting that moment in your life when you're most susceptible, vulnerable to attack. And this verse says that sin has a desire, and that desire is to have you, to own you, to destroy you, to do damage to you. Now, me, I think, of, well, you know, there are sins that are okay, sins that aren't that big a deal, sins that I can handle, sins that, you know, let's not make too big a deal out of everything. But that's not how the Bible looks at it. In fact, this verse doesn't say there are some really big, serious sins, scandalous sins that crouch at your door. No, it just says all sins do. All sins. No matter to you if you think I'm as small, as big, as important, or as unimportant, they crouch waiting to attack. A guy named Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. It's a book we usually have in our bookstore, but I was told we ran out after last service, but we'll order more if you want to get it. It's a great book that we did in our small group and got a lot out of it. And in that book called Respectable Sins, he has chapters on all kinds of sins, like maybe sin of unthankfulness. You don't think of that really as a sin, do you? Or impatience, or sins of irritability, or anger, frustration, worry. Everybody's list of what we might call respectable sins, sins that we don't think are that big a deal and you don't have to really be embarrassed by them. But we, everybody's list is going to be different. But, but, but one thing is that we all have them. We all have sins that unfortunately we've made peace with. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. Here's what we're going to see this morning in the Bible. Sins that you and I would call respectable sins, sins that would make anybody's list of sins that really aren't that big a deal, are the sins that led directly to the crucifixion of Christ. It wasn't just scandalous sins. It was ordinary sins that we don't even really call sin anymore that led to the death of Christ. There are two specific sins we're going to see this morning. The sin of envy and the sin of people-pleasing. Let's start, though, in Mark 15, verse 1. It says this, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, at the end of chapter 14, uh, the Sanhedrin, which is the kind of highest religious council in Israel, had made up a charge and then found Jesus guilty of that charge. And the charge was blasphemy because Jesus had claimed to be God. Now every time I read these stories in the gospel, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that it's the religious people who are trying to kill Jesus. It's the religious people who are conspiring against him. And it reminds all of us that religion is often a great enemy of Christianity. And we read that they were at work, this Sanhedrin, this council of religious leaders was at work very early in the morning. And that's because the Roman officials, the Roman noblemen, didn't have a very long work day. But about mid-morning, they would take off to do their pursuit of leisure, you know, golf or whatever it was for them that they enjoyed doing. So at the crack of dawn, they're trying to hustle Jesus over to see Pilate. 
They tie Jesus up. All these Roman guards tying up this single, nonviolent prophet. It seems a bit odd. Now, why do they send him to Pilate? Well, a few reasons. Like last Sunday, Dave mentioned one, and that is that they wanted Jesus to be killed, and yet, as religious leaders, they didn't have uh, the right to perform capital punishment. That was something that only the Roman government could do. And then secondly, they just didn't want Jesus killed. They want him crucified. And again, only Rome could crucify someone. But crucifixion was the best way in their mind to discredit Jesus, to humiliate him and put him to death in such a shameful way would discredit all that he had said and taught. And then finally they send him to Pilate because that's exactly what Jesus told us would happen. Back in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that's Pilate, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. See, and all that's happening, and all the fake trials, and all the false accusations, and all the shuttling him from one place to the next in the middle of the night, Jesus is not surprised. He's not caught off guard or caught unaware. No, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus knows the future because Jesus controls the future. Not just in his life, but in yours as well. There's nothing that will happen to you this next year. There's nothing that's happened in your past that has caught Jesus off guard. He controls every area of our life. Verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Now that probably comes off more of, a question, more of a question in our language than it would have originally when Pilate spoke to Jesus. It's more as if he's saying, you're the king of the Jews, right? And Jesus says, you have said so. See, this is the first time that, that, that Jesus has been charged with being a king. Before he'd been charged with blasphemy because he claimed to be God. But now he's charged with being a king. Why? Where does that come from? Well, the Jewish religious leaders, they knew that Rome wasn't going to be interested in their religious and theological debates. If they had come to Pilate and said, Jesus has claimed to be God, Pilate wouldn't have cared. So instead, they say that he came claiming to be a king. And the Messiah was a king, but a different kind of king than Pilate would have thought of. And Luke, we're told exactly what they told Pilate. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So by calling him a king and saying that's what Jesus claimed to be, what they were trying to do, what these religious leaders were trying to do is force Pilate's hand. You see, Rome could tolerate a certain amount of uh, religious diversity, but they could not tolerate someone going around subverting their authority, telling people not to pay taxes, and claiming to be a king. You see, that threatened their political power. So again, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds to Pilate's question by saying, you have said so. 
That's a bit of a vague answer, and I think Jesus is being intentionally vague. The emphasis is on the word you, as if you, Pilate, have said so. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Pilate, you are speaking more truth than you even know. Jesus' answer doesn't directly affirm nor deny that he is the king. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. We aren't sure exactly what the chief priests were accusing Jesus of, but we do know this. It was both baseless and vicious. These men hated Jesus so much that they they had conspired to kill him. They had been making up lies and finding others who would confirm those lies, all with the attempt to have Jesus discredited and killed and crucified. But in the face of all these attacks and accusation, Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't launch a counterattack. Pilate is taken aback by all this. He doesn't understand Jesus' silence. And so he says to Jesus, look at what they're accusing you of. Don't you have anything to say in your defense? But again, we're told that in the face of unjust accusations, Jesus remains silent, and Pilate is amazed. See, Pilate Pilate has seen hundreds, probably even thousands of prisoners stand before their accusers, but he's never seen one respond like Jesus did. Isaiah 53, 7, before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah tells us how Jesus would respond in this situation. The Apostle Peter tells us where Jesus got the power to respond that way. 1 Peter 2.23 When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I want to learn to trust God like Jesus did. I want to learn to so entrust myself to God, submit myself to His will, that even in the face of accusations that are unfair, even when something is done that is mischaracterized or motives wrongly called into question, I don't want to retaliate. I don't want to lash out. I don't want to strike back. I don't want to try to hurt others. I so want to be like Jesus who entrusted himself to his Father, entrusted himself to the one who would judge justly, entrusted himself to the one who would vindicate him. Well, somehow Jesus' silence convinced Pilate that Jesus was innocent and not guilty. And so Pilate decided to try to seek Jesus' release. Verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. See, evidently there had been an insurrection or an uprising that had just happened not long before 
this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And like all uprisings against Rome, this one failed. The people who were the leaders were arrested and taken into custody and charged and found guilty, and they were to die by crucifixion. And so now one of their leaders is named Barabbas. And Jesus comes before, or I mean Pilate comes before and asks about him. It's interesting because Barabbas' name means literally son of the father. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because Jesus is called the son of God. Matthew goes even a little bit further and tells us that Barabbas' given name was Jesus. A very common name in that era. Now as ruler of this area, Pilate had the freedom to pardon any criminal that he wanted to. And so he gives the people a choice. Verse 8, the crowd came up and Pilate asked, to do, and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. See what he's doing is he's saying, do you want me to release Jesus, Barabbas, the murderer? Or Jesus, the Messiah, the King? Verse 9 again. Do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Verse 10. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Why did the chief priests hate Jesus so much? Why did they conspire? Why did they so oppose his ministry? No matter how much good he did, they stood in opposition. Why? What drove them? Well, here, the curtain is pulled back. Their heart is laid bare. It was the sin of envy that drove their hatred. Now, envy is one of those respectable sins, isn't it? It, Only respectable from our perspective, not from God's, because it was envy that drove the crucifixion of Christ. Let's talk about envy for just a moment. And see if we find it in our heart. Envy is grief or anger that comes when we see the success of other people. Maybe of a particular person who you've lived life with and you see him or her getting ahead and it causes anger or or sadness in your heart. Envy is related to jealousy, but, but they're different. A jealous person says, I want what you have. An envious person says, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm bothered that you have it so well. Whenever you see envy or jealousy, the other one is probably close by. I read an article on CNN about a a study done by a guy named Thomas DeLong. He's a professor at the Harvard Business School. And he has noticed something he said in his students and colleagues called comparison obsession. That's what he calls it, a comparison obsession. And he talks about a particular student, a woman who graduated about 10 years ago, and, and she was very successful. Uh, worked at a Fortune 500 company and was really happy until she got one of those alumni newsletters that come, you know. And, and, and she saw that another person who had graduated in her MBA class had now just been named vice president of a Fortune 100 company. And all of a sudden she was angry. All of a sudden, she didn't like her job anymore. And he said that's what he's seeing in more and more students and more and more colleagues is this comparison obsession. 
So he went and he did some research and he interviewed 500 of what he called uh, uh, high achievers. People who had graduated from from, uh, reputable business schools and were doing extremely well in the marketplace. And he found that in the 500 interviews, 400 people, four out of every five, mentioned being frustrated that someone else they knew was further ahead than they were. And this Harvard Business School professor he, he labeled this as being trapped by their comparing reflex. That they're trapped by comparing themselves to other people. Well, envy is a sin of comparison. Envy happens in our heart when we start looking at other people and we start saying, I deserve better than what they have. I deserve a better job. I deserve a better income. I deserve a better spouse, a better neighborhood, a better set of kids, a better health condition. See, you become envious of others' blessings because you don't see them as deserving as you are. They didn't work as hard. They haven't persevered as much. They haven't tried to be a good enough person like you have. And so when you start seeing yourself as deserving, it's hard not to be upset at the blessings that other people have. When you just go it's a little bit deeper, go one layer deeper, and what you really realize is that the person you're upset and angry with is God. For every good gift comes from God's hand, whether it's to us or to someone else. And so you start re- realizing that the person you're really upset with God because He has given that person blessings that you want for your life, And then subtly, slowly, maybe without even understanding you're doing it, you begin to doubt other areas of God's wisdom and God's goodness and God's justice. See, when you start to envy, when you start to compare yourself with others, it leads to dissatisfaction. It leads to your own life kind of becoming less enjoyable. It means that you're doing real damage to yourself, doing real damage to your relationships with other people, doing real damage in your relationship with God. In the Scientific American magazine, there was another study by another professor, you can tell I've been bored and reading a lot, uh, by by a woman named Vicki Medvick. And I thought it was really interesting. This one really piqued my interest because she, she just noticed that in the Olympics, she was watching the Olympics just like anybody else, and she noticed by people's facial reaction that, that the bronze medalists looked happier than the silver medalists. She said, well, that shouldn't be. Why do the bronze look, uh, winners look so much happier than the silver winners? So she goes out and she does a research project on it, and what she finds is this, that all of her study and research confirm that that is exactly right. Bronze medal winners are happier than silver medal winners. And here's why. Because silver, silver medal, I can't even say it, silver medal winners, they look at the gold and they go, I just missed it by that much. Just, I was so close and I could have been gold. The bronze medal winner, they look and go, I was really close to not getting a medal at all. I'm just lucky to be here. I'm happy. And it just struck me, how do I... See myself. How do you see yourself? Are you like that guy who won silver? 
And you go, I, I, I want that. I'm so close to this. I deserve better. I, I'd be happy if I had that. I'm so close to having what I want in life, but not quite there. Are you like that woman who won bronze and is just sitting there going, wow, I almost didn't make it at all. See, spiritually speaking, if we had God's perspective, we'd all see ourselves as that bronze medal winner. Because we know that apart from God's grace, there'd be nothing good in our life. That we don't deserve anything good, that any blessing, any moment of health, any good relationship, any job, any income, any ability to take care of ourselves, any closeness with another person, any friendship, any appreciation for sports or music or art, anything at all that we have that is good in our life is a complete gift of God's grace that we don't deserve any of it. See, the way you fight envy, the way you fight jealousy in your life is to stand back and be amazed at how good God has been to you. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to him. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Why did Pilate have Jesus crucified? Even though he knew that he wasn't guilty of doing anything wrong. It's complicated. There are a lot of factors. On one hand, Pilate couldn't let someone go around live who was saying he was a king. That wouldn't have worked with Rome. And then on top of that, you had hundreds of thousands of people packed in Jerusalem, and Pilate was there to make sure that the crowds didn't get out of control. He couldn't have it on his record that he couldn't control these religious fanatics. And so he wanted to appease the crowd to keep them quiet. But also we're told something else. The curtain is pulled back on Pilate's heart, and I think in the process it's pulled back on our heart, and another one of these respectable sins is exposed. And that is this. Pilate was guilty of wanting to please people. Pilate was a people pleaser. He wanted to be popular with the crowd. He wanted the crowd's affirmation. In 2011, a Sports Illustrated article ended with this. Home field advantage is no myth. Indisputably, it exists all across sports and at all levels, from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL. The team hosting a game wins more often than not. Now, why is that? Well, again, another research project, they went and they studied. Why is it that home field advantage exists? And some people thought it was because you performed better at home. And so they went and they, they measured the velocity on a fastball. They measured the speed at which a ball came off of a tennis racket. And they looked at free throw percentages. And every single time, the visiting team and the home team performed just as well. They thought, well, maybe it has to do with tiredness and travel and being away from home. But again, no statistical difference whatsoever. And yet this home field advantage for sure exists. Why? Well, it's the officials. Biased by the officials, right? They really do. The officials don't want to get booed. 
They don't. They're just like you and I. I mean, maybe that explains the UCLA loss the other night and that Phil Pressy intentional foul. I'm still bitter a little bit. But really what happens is that when the games get close and are on the line, the calls, the strike zone, the fouls, the penalties start going toward the favor of the home team. It's not that any official is trying to do that. They for sure are not trying to do it. They're just trying to do their job, but they don't like to get booed. They don't want the crowd to hate them. They're human beings just like the rest of us, and so that makes an impact on the game. Well, guess what? You and I are the same way. You and I are the same way. We don't like to get booed. We don't like to stand in opposition to the crowd. We don't want other people's anger and displeasure at us. And because we don't like to get booed, it influences how we live our life. The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 1. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you see the either-or-ness of that? Do you see the fork in the road? You see things like that in the Bible, right? I mean, uh, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. you got to choose. You can't lay up treasures both on heaven and on earth. you got to choose. You can't build your house, the, your life on sand or the rock you got to choose one or the other. And here the Apostle Paul says, you cannot live to please God and to please people. Not at the same time you can't. You've always got to choose. What audience am I living my life for? Is it an audience of my family, at my school, of my team, of my peers, my neighborhood, people at the office? Who am I living my life for? Who is my audience? And what we all want to be at is a place where we say we live for the audience of one. We live for God and God alone. And so all this circles back to respectable sins. And it turns out there are no respectable sins. I mean, they're only respectable from our vantage point, not from God's. All sins are serious. I mean, the sin of envy and the sin of people-pleasing led directly to the crucifixion of Christ. Sins that you and I would think are not that big a deal, we tolerate far worse in our life. We've made peace with far worse. And yet, their seriousness can hardly be overstated. And what they do in our life is damage. Now, who in this story do you identify with? Maybe it's the chief priest and you see envy in your heart. Maybe it's Pilate and you realize that you are far more interested in other people's opinion than God's. I don't know where you are. But I know one person I want you to identify with in this story is Barabbas. Think about it for a moment. He'd committed murder. He'd led an uprising against Rome. He was intended to be crucified. And he deserved it. And Jesus took his place. Jesus literally died in the place of Barabbas. Jesus was literally his substitute. And in a very real way, if you put your faith in Christ, in Christ alone for your sin, If you cling to Jesus, say, Jesus, I can't 
deal with my sin. I'm looking to you. You're my only hope. Then in a very real way, Jesus will be your substitute. He'll bear the wrath of God that you deserve, that you earned, just like he did Barabbas. See, all of us have sinned. Some are respectable and some not so much. All of them serious. All of them deserving death. All of them deserving God's judgment. But the great news of the Gospel is that God sent His Son to bear our sin. If we will only turn to Him and put our faith in Him, it does not happen automatically. It doesn't happen because you show up to church or even take communion. It happens because you, enabled by God's grace, turn away from yourself and put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus. Then He will bear your sin. And you will go free like Barabbas did. But not only that, Jesus doesn't just forgive but He frees you from your sin so that you can grow into the man and woman He wants you to be. So that you can walk in the light and walk in truth. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take communion with us. Communion is open to everyone whose faith is in Christ and Him alone for their sin. If you haven't taken communion with us here before, there's aisles that will here on the wall and inside Uh, And just walk up one of the aisles and take a piece of the bread and dip it. Dip it into the wine that's in our hand or the juice that's on the stool in front of us. You don't need to say anything, although we will say a word of encouragement to you. Uh, At the crossing, we always remember at communion, those in our church and in our community who have physical and financial needs. And so the baskets with the white cloths are um, dedicated to that. Any money that goes in there during communion only goes to that purpose. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he took some wine and he poured it into a cup and he said, this is my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, as you shine your spotlight of truth into our heart, it is exposed. We are exposed. Maybe it's the sin of envy. Maybe it's the sin of people-pleasing. It's probably a thousand other sins, too. Father, we say, have mercy upon us, for we are sinners. I pray, Father, that as we come to this table, we would come with hearts of confession, but also hearts of joy that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that He paid the penalty we deserve, that He has forgiven us and set us free. Father, we are Barabbas. All Christians are the ones who've been set free because you died in our place. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.